Beloved Bhagwan, that which follows is witnessed on the way. It's beyond the ken of our hearts and mortals. When the mind reaches Nirvana, you don't see Nirvana because the mind is Nirvana. If you see Nirvana somewhere outside the mind, you're deluding yourself. Every suffering is a Buddha seed because suffering impels to seek wisdom. But you can only say that suffering gives rise to Buddhahood. You can't say that suffering is Buddhahood. Your body and mind are the field. Suffering is the seed. Wisdom, the sprout, and Buddhahood, the grain. When the three poisons are present in your mind, you live in a land of filth. When the three poisons are absent from your mind, you live in a land of purity. There's no language that isn't the Dharma. To talk all day without saying anything is the way. To be silent all day and still say something isn't the way. Hence, neither does a Tathagata's speech depend on silence, nor does his silence depend on speech, nor does his speech exist apart from his silence. Those who understand both speech and silence are in samadhi. If you speak when you know, your speech is free. If you're silent when you don't know, your silence is tied. Language is essentially free. It has nothing to do with attachment, and attachment has nothing to do with language. Reality has no high or low. If you see high or low, it isn't real. According to the world, there's male and female, rich and poor. According to the way, there's no male or female, no rich or poor. When the goddess realized the way, she didn't change her sex. When the stable boy awakened to the truth, he didn't change his status. Free of sex and status, they shared the same basic appearance. The goddess searched 12 years for her womanhood 
without success. To search twelve years for one's manhood would likewise be fruitless. Bodhidharma is a mind of pure gold, except on two points. Which he goes on continuously insisting. He is the man to be listened, to be understood, to be absorbed as deeply in your heart as possible. But those two points have to be remembered. I have been wondering why nobody contemporary to Bodhidharma pointed to those two flaws and the only thing I can think of is that Bodhidharma was too strong an individuality, too charismatic, that in front of him people must have felt completely silent. His power must have been overwhelming, otherwise the defects are so clear that it is impossible that nobody would have noticed them. And he himself has reached to his ultimate flowering. He has arrived home. It is no more his concern that on the path 
he has gone few times astray. Although he always comes back, there is an ancient saying in the East that if somebody goes astray in the morning and comes back home in the evening, he should not be considered lost. And it is very natural for people who are spontaneous once in a while to go astray because they are not following any ready-made track. They are not like railway trains. continuously moving on the same track. They are more like wild rivers. Without any map, without any guide, the river arises far away in the Himalayas and it starts its journey in the mountains, in the valleys, in the plains, moving continuously this way and that way, but finally it falls into the ocean. And who cares when one has arrived the ocean that on the way there have been few steps taken. Which were not necessary, which could have been avoided. Once a person has reached, he almost forgets in his celebration The long journey, the long search towards Self-realization. Perhaps that is the reason why Bodhidharma cannot see those simple two defects. Except those two defects, His every word is absolutely sincere and authentic. It is not a word of knowledge. It is an outpouring of innocence. He is not speaking he is exposing his whole being to you. But I have to warn you on those two points. 
One is his continuous antagonism towards the Arhatas. And second is, in the beginning I was thinking it must have been the disciples' fault who is taking the notes. But it is so continuously repeated that there is every possibility it was not disciples' fault, but he himself was using the word mind in a wrong way. Because in English there is only one word, the theosophists, the Christian scientists, have managed a certain device for the ordinary human mind, they use a small m, and for the universal mind, which is equivalent to no mind, they use a capital M. Certainly the universal mind is not your mind. As far as you are concerned, your mind has disappeared and you have entered into a state of no mind. On these points I will correct his sutra. I cannot allow such a beautiful statement of the truth to have even a small blemish. The Sutra, that which follows, is witnessed on the way. He is saying that the sutras that are going to follow are not my philosophical standpoints, they are my experiences on the way. That which follows is witnessed on the way. I will be saying only that which I have witnessed. It is not my belief, it is not my doctrine, it is not my dogma. It is my 
absolute indubitable experience it has an intrinsic authority whoever follows the way will find the same sutras opening their doors their secrets their perfume to the traveler if he is going right these sutras can be used as a criterion if nothing like this happens to you that means you are not on the right path then your river has entered into some desert where it can be lost without reaching the ocean he goes on to say it is beyond the ken of arhatas and mortals i have to correct he needed a man like me it is not beyond the ken of the arhatas it is certainly beyond the ken of so called saints and the martyrs the people who are still living with the idea that this life is all and with death everything ends these are the martyrs and the so called saints whose intentions cannot be doubted who are sincere people but they have fallen into wrong ways they have become followers imitators they have ideals in their minds cultivated by the society by the tradition and they are trying in every possible way to fulfill those ideals knowing perfectly well that a buddha is born only once never again there will be another man like gautam buddha
there may be many buddhas but each buddha will have his own statement his own individuality his own manifestation he will not be a true copy of gautam buddha all true copies are after all carbon copies they don't have the beauty of the original and people go on following precepts given in the scriptures those precepts are as dead as you will find in the scriptures beautiful roses dried out dead people keep them in the holy bible in the holy quran in the holy gita but they are not alive anymore I had a beautiful garden I have always had a beautiful garden wherever I was and there were two temples nearby and the worshipers in those temples will simply come into my garden and start picking up flowers to worship god and in india it is absolutely impossible somebody to prevent when he is picking up flowers to worship gods I had to put a notice in front of my garden that except religious people everybody is allowed to pick up the flowers <laughs> those worshipers were very much sad as a group they brought almost a deputation that what kind of man you are religious people are nowhere prevented because those flowers are going to be offered to god i said to them that those flowers in this garden are already offered to god 
and I will not allow flowers of God which are alive and dancing in the wind and in the sun to be destroyed by you idiots. These flowers are living gods and you are going to destroy their life for your dead gods. That's why I have made it clear on the notice, except religious people, anybody can pick up the flower. If somebody wants to give a flower to his girlfriend <laughs> or to her boyfriend, they are perfectly welcome. These flowers are divine and perhaps they may transform their love also into a divine affair. But one thing is certain, at least they are going to offer to someone who is alive. And you are going to offer to dead statues, stones, this cannot be tolerated. The so-called saints pick up precepts, disciplines from the scriptures. They are like dead flowers. Thousands of years old, dried up, They don't have any fragrance anymore. It is something very significant to remember that every discipline is a device by a living master. Every precept is a certain strategy by a living master. Without the Master, all those devices, precepts, commandments become dead. Then you can go on following them with absolute sincerity, but they will bring only torture and suffering to you and nothing else. Following the dead, you are going to become slowly, slowly dead. Your so-called saints are almost dead. dried up. 
they have lost touch with life they have created thousand and one barriers between themselves and existence and those barriers they call discipline austerity religious practice these people i can consider that it is beyond the can of the so called saints and the ordinary mortals who are not aware of their immortality but they are not beyond the can of arhats arhats are absolutely on the same height as any bodhisattva bodhisattvas have nothing more than the arhats have they have followed different paths from different directions but they have reached to the same peak the peak is always the one the paths leading to you can be thousands when the mind reaches nirvana that is his second fallacy because the mind never reaches nirvana in fact mind cannot even conceive the idea of nirvana nirvana the very word means cessation of mind it is annihilation of the mind the actual meaning of the word nirvana will help you to understand literally it means blowing off a candle mind is just a small candle with a small flame of awareness but even that small flame can do immense harm i will tell you one incident in ravindranath tagore's life his father was a great landlord hundreds of towns 
and thousands of miles was their estate. And there was a beautiful river flowing through their estate. And Ramanatha used often to go on his small houseboat and live for months just in the beautiful river surrounded by thick forests in absolute silence and aloneness. One full moon night it happened. He was reading a very significant contribution to the philosophy of aesthetics by Crochet. Crochet is perhaps the most significant Western philosopher who has thought about beauty, whose whole life work is concerned about finding the meaning of beauty, not about truth, not about good. His sole concern is what is beautiful, because he thinks if we can find what is beautiful, we have found what is true, because truth cannot be ugly. We have found what is good, because the beautiful cannot be evil. A beautiful conception, and with this foundation, he worked his whole life to find out from different angles what is beauty. And Rabindranath himself was a worshipper of beauty. He lived a very beautiful and aesthetic life. Not only he created beautiful poetry, his life itself was a beautiful poem. He was a very graceful man. On that full moon night, with his small candle inside his houseboat, he was reading crochet. In the middle of night, tired, 
with crosses, very complicated arguments. He closed the book, blow off the candle. He was going to his bed to sleep, but a miracle happened. As the small flame of the candle disappeared from every window, door of the small house on the boat, the moon came dancing in. The moon filled it with its splendor. Ravinath remained silent for a moment. It was such a sacred experience. He went out of the house, and the moon was immensely beautiful in that silent night. Amongst those silent trees, with a river completely flowing so slowly that there was no noise, he wrote in his diary the next morning. that the beauty was all around me, but a small candle was preventing it. Because of the light of the candle, the light of the moon could not enter in. This is exactly the meaning of nirvana. Your small flame of the ego, your small flame of the mind and its consciousness is preventing the whole universe to rush into you. Hence the word nirvana, blow off the candle and let the whole universe penetrate you from every nook and corner. You will not be a loser. You will found for the first time your inexhaustible treasure of beauty, of good, of truth, of all that is valuable.
Hence, mind cannot be said to reach nirvana. Only no mind is equivalent to nirvana. No mind need not reach to nirvana. No mind is nirvana. Bodhidharma says I am correcting him. When the no mind reaches nirvana, you don't see nirvana. Because you are not separate from nirvana. You can see only something which is separate from you. You are one with it. Hence there is no possibility of seeing. Because the no mind is nirvana, if you see nirvana somewhere outside the no mind, you are deluding yourself. In such, the mind is the world and the no mind is the freedom from the world. The mind is the misery and no mind is the end of misery and the beginning of ecstasy. Every suffering is a Buddha seed. This is a very important assertion on the part of Bodhidharma. Every suffering is a Buddha seed because suffering impels to seek wisdom. But you can only say that suffering gives rise to Buddhahood. You can't say that suffering is Buddhahood. Burton Russell in his autobiography has a very profound statement. He says, if misery in the world ends, all the religions will end on their own account. It is the misery that is keeping the religions alive. Although he is telling from a very different angle, he was an atheist. He wanted all the religions to disappear. 
I am not an atheist. I also want all the religions to disappear, but for a different reason. He wants religions to disappear because he thinks religions have been detrimental to the evolution of man. I want religions to disappear so that religiousness can have the whole space that is being occupied by religions. Religions have been detrimental to the progress of religiousness. Because to me religiousness is the highest flower of evolution. Bodhidharma is right when he says that even suffering has to be gratefully accepted because it is the very seed of Buddha. If there was no suffering, you will never search for the truth. It is suffering that goes on impelling you to go beyond it. It is anguish and agony that finally compel you to seek and search the path that goes beyond suffering and again. To find a way that reaches to blissfulness and to eternal joy. Bodhidharma is saying, don't be antagonistic to suffering. Even feel grateful to suffering. That is a great idea. Feel grateful to pain, suffering, old age, death, because all these are creating the situation for you to search for truth. Otherwise you will fall asleep. Otherwise you will be so comfortable, you will become a vegetable. <laughs> there will be no need. Suffering creates the need for a search. Your body and mind are the field. Suffering is the seed. Wisdom the sprout.
and Buddhahood the grave. In this synthesis, he is giving credit to your body, to your mind, to suffering, he is taking in account your whole life, he is not denying anything, its contribution, he is being very impartial. The body and the mind are the field, suffering is the seed, wisdom the sprout, and Buddhahood the flower. This is the way of a man who looks life as an organic unity. The so-called religions which have lost contact with their living founders are against the body, they torture the body. rather than being grateful to the body, that it is the very field, it is the very temple in which the Buddha has to be discovered. Even suffering, agony, is not to be condemned by a man like Bodhidharma. He says that too has a part to play, it keeps you awake. It keeps you constantly alert, provokes you and challenges you to find a way that can lead you beyond it. When the three poisons are present in your mind, you live in a land of filth. When the three poisons are absent from your mind, you live in a land of purity. So in fact the heaven and hell are not separate from each other. They happen in the same life just 
the structure has to change. Where there was the three poisons of greed, anger and delusion, you created a hell within yourself. The moment you drop those poisons of greed, anger and delusion, which really constitute your mind, the moment you have dropped the mind, your very being becomes heaven itself. The idea that is prevalent in the world is that those who are good will enter one day into heaven after death, and those who are bad will enter hell one day after death. That idea is absolutely wrong. The good has already entered heaven. There is no need to wait for death. And heaven is not somewhere else. It is just your own transformation. The same energy that is anger, becomes compassion. The same energy that is greed becomes sharing. The same energy that is delusion becomes awareness. The energy is the same just its direction changes. And to change the direction of your energies, to create a new symphony out of your energies, is the whole art of religion. Anybody who preaches anything else as religion is himself blind and taking other blinds into a dark night and they are all going to fall into a well somewhere or other. Man has been given by nature everything. If it is put right, 
man becomes a Buddha. If that energy is in this car, and you cannot create an orchestra out of that energy, your life becomes a hell. You are the space where heaven and hell both are possible. Just a little awareness and you can change the hell into heaven and just a little change, a little different arrangement. But it is the same energy, nothing has to be added to you, nothing has to be deleted from you. This is one of the greatest insights possible. It makes man the master of his own life. If he is living in hell, he should take the responsibility upon his own shoulders. He should not say that it is God's will. He should not say that it is my fate, my destiny, my kismet. He should say it is my unconsciousness, it is me. The moment you take the responsibility on your own shoulders, the possibility is you will start changing, because nobody else is putting you in hell. And you don't have to wait for anybody to change you, to save you. You can simply start watching your energies and you can see how they create hell, how they create misery. And you can see also how in some moments you are silent, In some moments you are happy, in some moments joy grips you. Watch what those energies are doing. They are the same energies, you don't have anything else. One has just to understand how his energies function. And if one wants to live in hell, that is his choice. That is his birthright. Nobody has the right to disturb him. Let him live in hell. And if he wants to change, he has every 
possibility to change himself. There is no need for waiting for a Saviour, for a Jesus Christ or a Krishna. You have to become your own saviors. That is the fundamental teaching of Bodhidharma. There is no language that is not the Dharma. Here he is taking a very strange but significant turn. I have never come across any other mystic who has said what he is going to say in this sutra. There is no language that is not the dharma. To talk all day without saying anything is the way. To be silent all day and still say something is not the way. Sometimes his penetration into human reality is so great and so surprising. He is saying that there is a possibility of a man who may talk the whole day, knowingly well that nothing can be said about truth. Then why he is talking? Perhaps through talking He can create a situation for silence. Just as after every storm there is great silence. When the Master speaks and he stops for a moment, Suddenly there is a great silence. He speaks not to say the truth, because the truth cannot be said. He speaks to engage your mind, and then suddenly when he sees that you are engaged, he gives just a small gap. And in that gap, happens the transmission of the lamp. That's what is the language of Bodhidharma, transmission of the lamp. In those moments between two words, 
something miraculous just takes a jump from the being of the master and enters into the silence of your being hence it is possible that a gautam buddha may have spoken for 42 years continuously morning afternoon evening and still he has not said the truth but he transmitted the lamp he used the language in such a way that it creates a small gaps of silence and those gaps are his real sermons and bodhi dharma says there are people who take the vow of being silent and i have known many so called saints who don't speak but their silence is so ridiculous because they find other ways i have seen some carrying small boards with the whole alphabet they cannot speak but their chief disciple is sitting by the side and they go on putting on the alphabet y e s yes <laughs> and that dodo disciple who is sitting by the side he says yes it is ridiculous if you want to say yes why go such a roundabout way unnecessarily creating a circus <laughs> and there have been people who have dictated whole books just on the board it would have been easier to learn typing because this is a very primitive way of typing <laughs> it takes such a long time i have seen people who will not use any board but they will make gestures with their hands <laughs> 
and those gestures you cannot understand. They are trained disciples who knows what they mean when they saw the face, what they mean when they saw the five fingers, what they mean when they saw the two fingers. These people are not saints, these are so men. And their silence is absolutely nonsense. But all kinds of stupidities go on being perpetuated in the name of religion. A man came to see me, I was in Bombay, he was a very well-known saint, he lived in the Himalayas and he had come especially to see me. Usually I avoid saints, sages, that kind of idiots I don't want. But when I was informed he has come from far away Himalayas to Bombay just to see me, I said, he has taken so much trouble, I should also suffer a little. <laughs> So I called him in, he came with his disciple, he wanted to know about meditation. I said that from tomorrow morning I am going to have a meditation session every day in the morning for seven days you have come in the right time, because meditation is not something to be explained. It is something to be experienced. So from tomorrow morning, eight o'clock, for seven days you meditate with me. And then if you have any questions, I will give you individual appointment, you can ask all your questions. He said, it will be difficult for tomorrow for me to come. I said, what is the problem? You have come to see me. He said, for me there is no problem. The problem is the man, my disciple. has to go somewhere to meet someone. His relatives live nearby in Kalyan. So I said, I don't understand yet. Let him go to hell. You come to meditation. He said, you don't understand my problem. I cannot touch money. 
he keeps the money. To pay the taxi driver, I have him absolutely with me. Otherwise, how I can manage to come here? I said, it is strange, it is your money. <laughs> he is the keeper and you are being famous for not touching the money. And this poor fellow will fall into hell. He is touching your money. <laughs> it is not even his. What kind of karma he is committing? <laughs> touching one's money is bad. And touching somebody else money, that must be worse. I said, think of this poor man also. If it is your money, whether you touch it or not, or you can purchase rubber gloves. <laughs> Make it simple. So you can touch the money, but still you are not touching it. <laughs> but that will not make somebody a saint. If somebody is wearing rubber gloves, <laughs> and having all kinds of monies with him, you will not call him a saint, that this seems to be a very cunning man. But having another person is not different either. So there are people who are silent, but there inside they are boiling. They want to speak. And they find ways of speaking. Either by making gestures, which is a very difficult thing, because they become absolutely dependent, almost slaves, to the person who interprets them. And it is up to him how he interprets. They cannot even prevent him. They cannot even say that you are not right. They have to accept whatsoever their interpretation is. One man 
Adi Irani, he has been the secretary of Meher Baba for almost his whole life. And whenever I used to go to Ahmednagar, Adi Inani, if he was in the city, used to come to see me. He has written all the books of Meher Baba. Meher Baba simply makes signs. First he used to use the board, then he dropped the board. Because people started criticizing him that it is the same thing, just a slower process, a bullock cart process in a rocket age. What nonsense is this? So he dropped it. And he trained Adi Irani that he will make gestures with his hands. Nobody knows what he is doing. Only Adi Irani knows and he writes the books. I asked Adi Irani that, are you certain that whatever you are writing is really what he wants to say? He said, I cannot speak lie at least to you. I don't know. <laughs> I figure out it must be right because he has never objected. <laughs> now this seems to be hilarious. He does not know exactly whether he is interpreting him or he is just managing himself. And because he has never objected, that is the only reason that he thinks he must be right. I said, do you really exactly understand? Because by symbols, small things can be explained. You are hungry, you can just show your stomach. You are thirsty, you can just show your hands that you need water. But great philosophical treatises, I don't conceive that how you can make symbols for them. And how many symbols will be needed? Only with your ten fingers and Adi Irani has written almost fifty books, not small. 500 pages, 1,000 pages. I told Adi Irani that 
it is all your imagination. You are a good writer, but those books are your writings, not Meher Baba's. But he is silent because you are writing well. And people are accepting those writings in his name. He had a worldwide following. But he is absolutely dependent. He cannot move anywhere without Adi Iran. Because wherever he goes alone, he will be thought mad. Nobody will understand what he is. But if you want to say what is wrong with saying with your lips and your tongue, and what is right saying with your fingers, just as your lips and your tongue are part of body, your fingers are also part of the same body. And they are not meant to speak. <laughs> Why not use the right natural vehicle? Symbols are dangerous. When for the first time Japanese sannyasis started coming here, I was in a great trouble. <laughs> because they are the only people in the whole world who has a different symbology. It is strange how they have developed it. All over the world, in every country, in every race, from very primitive people to the very sophisticated ones, when you want to say yes, you <laughs> make the sign with your head, yes. <laughs> Japanese, when they make this sign, mean no. I was asking something and the poor fellow is saying yes, but I will understand no, because his, his yes means that is his yes. In the beginning I used to ask him, do you want to become a sannyasin? And he's saying yes. <laughs> and I will say, if you don't want, then why you have come? <laughs> they have developed a very strange. Somebody has to look into it because they are the only people. Then I had continuously an Japanese interpreter to tell me what 
signs they are making. Because it is going continuously misunderstanding. When they say yes, I understand no. When they say no, I understand yes. Bodhidharma is saying to be silent all day and still say something is not the way. If you are silent, it does not mean you cannot speak. You can remain silent and still you can speak. Just as you can remain silent and still you can walk. You can remain silent and still you can eat. Silence is something inner, a calmness, a quietness, a peace. In fact, the man who is silent inside can speak better than anybody else, because his mind is no more a disturbance. He can speak more emphatically more directly can reach to your very heart, because his words are coming from a depth, and that which comes from a depth has the capacity to reach to the similar depth if you are open to it. But silence is not something that is against speaking. Silence is far greater an experience than is speaking or language. And when you are silent, even while speaking, then your words have a beauty and a tremendous authority in them, because they are coming from a pure heart from a silent land, from the very lotus paradise of Gautam Buddha. Hence neither does a Tathagata's speech depend on silence, nor does his silence depend on speech. 
Tathagata is another name for Gautam Buddha. Or for anyone who has awakened to the suchness of things, Hence, neither does Tathagata's speech depend on silence, nor does his silence depend on speech, nor does his speech exist apart from his silence. Those who understand both speech and silence are in Samadhi. Let me repeat it. Those who understand both speech and silence are in Samadhi. Because Samadhi is the balance between speech and silence. It is just the exact middle where silence and speech meet, where silence and sound meet. That exact middle is beyond both. It is neither just silence, empty of noise, and it is not just a speech, full of chattering and noise, it is beyond both. It is a silence with a sound. But the song is soundless. It is a silence with music, but a music which is not produced on any instrument. A music which is simply your very nature. Ancient seers of this land have called it Omkar, the sound of Om. Not that you repeat Om, Om, you simply hear it. You are utterly silent, surrounded with a sound which is similar to Om. That's why Om has not been made a part of the Sanskrit alphabet. It is not a word, it is a symbol. Perhaps that is the only alphabet in the world which has in it a symbol, which is not part of the alphabet. But 
every Upanishad begins with Om. And every Upanishad ends with Om. And you may have observed that it is not just the Om, but also a repetition of three times of the Sanskrit word for silence, Shanti. Om Santi, Santi, Santi. It is a silence with a sound which cannot be produced on any instrument and which cannot be exactly spoken. Hence, we have made a symbol for it. It is beyond language, beyond alphabet, beyond speaking, beyond silence. Om has been called the very stuff the existence is made of. It is the music of the universe. If you speak when you know, your speech is free. If you are silent when you don't know, your silence is tied and dead and empty and meaningless. Language is essentially free. It has nothing to do with attachment. And attachment has nothing to do with language. It all depends on your mind or no mind. If mind uses language, it creates false realities, illusions. If no mind uses language, it creates devices to help others also to enter into the same space. What you make of it, it all depends on you, whether you are functioning as a mind or as a no mind. If you speak through the mind, you miss the point. If you allow the existence to speak through you, 
without any interference by the mind, language is pure expression of truth. Inside the whole thing can be summarized into a single statement. Mind is your prison. No mind is your freedom. Mind is your ignorance. No mind is your enlightenment. Move from mind to no mind. This is the whole path. This is the whole religion. Okay, man. Yes, Bhagwan. Waves are coming in, waves are coming in. 